Facebook is one of the biggest and most effective marketing platform on the planet. It's huge. Almost everyone you know is on Facebook and quite a number of brands and businesses are spending millions of dollars to advertise on it, including small startups, mom and pop shops, local restaurants and even churches. You can spend as little as you want and target specific audience you want at a micro level. But the problem is this. Most people have no clue how to run adverts on Facebook. They either double, waste a lot of money or hire someone else to do it for them. So my team put together a short course to help you. It's called Facebook Ads Mastery Program. It's a comprehensive ebook and a video course on how you can launch and manage profitable Facebook ads campaign for your business. And we made it super affordable too. For less than $10, you can have access to this course. Go to www.backchannel.africa forward slash Facebook mastery. If that URL is too long, you can just go to the show notes of this podcast and click on the link and get access to the course. The next African story will be written by Africans. Meet the people using technology, innovation, and entrepreneurship to craft this new narrative. This is Building the Future podcast with your host, Doting, coming up today on Building the Future. You have about 84% of the world living in what we classify as an emerging market, receiving less than 11% capital. And nowhere is that truer than in Sub-Saharan Africa. If we could back a great team and then double down and triple down on that team as they achieve growth and meet clear milestones, we could really support great companies throughout their growth lifecycle. When you ask the CEO of AB InBev why he spent shy of $20 billion to buy Sad Miller, the answer was simple. Africans drink more beer per capita than any place else on earth, and that's only going to continue to grow. This episode is brought to you by Rave. Rave is the easy way for African businesses to collect payments from customers anywhere in the world across multiple online and offline channels. Through Rave, you can accept Visa, MasterCard, Verve, and other debit or credit card payments from customers in over 154 countries. You can also seamlessly accept payment via your bank transfers from customers in the US, South Africa, and Nigeria, as well as via mobile wallet from customers in Kenya and Ghana. If you want to expand your business across the continent and you need a reliable payment solution, I would recommend that you My sign up My guest today is Steve Green, managing partner Capital is one of the venture funds in Africa that are doing great things. Uh, I heard about them for the fourth time last year when they were looking into a company that I know of and they were trying to invest in that company and I, and I was quite fascinated and also intrigued by the approach to the market, their clear understanding of what they want to achieve in, in Africa. And I later got to know about Steve and I'm having him on the podcast today because he is one of those people that are building the future in Africa by partnering with entrepreneurs using capital to give them the fuel that they need to build their company. So 
today. I'm having Steve here. Steve, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Great. So, Steve, let's start with how you got into the business of venture capital. I know you grew up in, in New York, and and then why did you why, why venture capital, and then why Africa? Oh, sure, Dalton. Thank you. Thank you again for having me. So, you know, I spent the first. 10 years of my career in what you would sort of classify as more traditional investing. I started my career in, in real estate development and then started my first private equity fund in, in the mid-aughts. Uh, so the first decade really North America, US-based energy, real estate infrastructure. And since 2009, so give or take the last decade now, I've been principally focused on frontier market investing, both as an angel and as a fund manager. And I'd spent some time uh, on the continent in 0506 working for a development economist named Jeff Sachs and, you know, really sort of became intrigued by the scale of the opportunity. And in 2013, after spending four years in South America investing, you know, came, came over, was spending a lot of time in Kenya where I had a number of good relationships and, you know, really saw something that I had seen before in the past, which was, you know, what I classify as sort of the repatriation of talent, you know, so really smart individuals whose parents busted, busted hard, worked hard to get their kids into great schools in, in the West, who were now coming back after having good degrees and some professional experience from, you know, pedigree institutions. And that was really an important signal for me. So in 2013, I guess I started doing what I've always done, which was investing off my own balance sheet. And, uh, you know, I'd, I'd be lying to you if I told you that in 2013, I wanted to raise a fund. Really, my interest there was, let me see what's going on. Let me explore the market and let me put some capital to work to best understand it. So so you approached the market or you approached venture capital in, in, West, in Africa, basically by initially invest in your own fund and try to experiment and see what what is happening there before you raise your fund my question now is i mean he looked like you saw growth and you saw talent going following that and you wanted to bet on that growth but what was the big picture for you was it to raise a fund afterwards or just exploring what is happening here as another asset class for you you know my experience over the last 20 years investing has that been that, you know, big ideas hit brick walls fairly quickly. And the notion was, let me understand what the market looks like at the micro level. Let me understand what the gaps are. Let me understand what the opportunities are. And, you know, in my experience, the best way to do that is really to use your own balance sheet, you know, and be an entrepreneur, understand what's going on, understand your customer in a sense, which my customer was the founder, the company he was trying to build and the market he was trying to serve. And as an investor, trying to understand what that market looked like holistically, and then ultimately build something from the top down. So, you know, in 2013, I began investing, you know, it was a combination of technology oriented businesses, real assets, which is a sector I know well as well as even making LP position in some funds that, that that you know of. And, you know, the experience really taught me what was missing in terms of type of capital required and what was wrong with sort of typical capitals coming into the market. You know, the traditional private equity two and 20 fund structure, which we can talk about. 2015, I was fortunate enough to meet my business partner who's South African. And really simply, we just began sharing each other's time and resources and, you know, sharing our diligence material. And we were fortunate enough that, we had a number of investors who were piggybacking on our efforts, piggybacking our diligence process, and effectively start syndicating opportunities and investing. You know, we'd made about a dozen investments at that time. And you know, lateral, lateral really came out organically from that effort. It was this notion that you know, my partner Rob and I went away to write our own white papers on what we saw as the market opportunity what we wanted and what envisioned for for the future of Africa. And when we came back to the table with these sort of, you know, this wish list, there was alignment there. And we realized that we had something, we had a we had a thesis for what was ultimately to become lateral capital. And so we officially launched the fund, I guess, uh, in Q4 now, 2016. 
and began fundraising uh, and rolling in some of our existing portfolio in, in early 2017. When you started, you started with uh, some form of hypothesis around the market and you wanted to explore it without having too much understanding of it and you're writing checks from your own balance sheet. But over time, you, you evolved your thesis after your white paper. So I'm interested in things that actually change that you learn or, or the things that was significant that stood out for you that you didn't know when you started the process that formed the basis for your thesis uh, behind uh, lateral capital? Sure. So I, I mentioned I, I spent four years in South America uh, managing and investing capital. And, you know, I, I became obsessed with this. You know, the, there were sort of two data points that sort of drove me up the wall. One was this topic that's been talked about, which is you have about 84% of the world living in what we classify as an emerging market, receiving less than 11% of capital. And, and and nowhere is that truer than in sub-Saharan Africa, you know, where the number and the, that dislocation is even greater. You know, you have 11 to 14% of the world population receiving less than 1% of capital, you know, and in that venture is probably 0.01% of that number. So, you know, that that was something that really drove me. And, and the other was... You know, fundamentally, as as a parent and, and a citizen of the world, that you have 3 billion plus people entering what we call the middle or consumer class that want all the same things that you know we take for granted in the West. And to provide those resources, we had to create efficient ways to do that. And so you had this convergence of, I guess, what could simply be called a massive demographic growth bubble um, and a need for capital to be deployed uh, into these markets. And, you know, that's sort of what initially drove me that let me go where this opportunity is are called biggest, greatest and most challenging. And that was the African market. And so 2013, I picked up and, you know, started spending a lot of time in, in, in West Africa and East Africa. So that was sort of the initial thesis that I, I went to market with. And, and what I began seeing quickly was, again, as I mentioned, this sort of repatriation of talent, um, you know, which is something that, you know, at the microeconomic level, we've we've seen time and time again in other other successful markets. And, and then um, you mentioned something about the current way in which um, venture is being done in the West and then assumptions around how it can, uh, venture can be run, the 220 model, and identifying businesses to invest in and, and building a, a, a business thesis around uh, around your investment. That probably might not work in Africa. I just want to deep dive into that and understand what do, you, what do you mean by that and what are the key differences that an investor should be looking at for in Africa. That may probably is not what you would do elsewhere. Mm. So, you know, I've written extensively around, you know, my issues with two and 20 blind pool fund structures, irrespective of whether you want to call it venture or private equity, you know, and, you know, these are, these are concepts and, and methodologies invested that, that have been created in the West where there are certainly a different set of dynamics. And, you know, simply it takes a lot longer to create value. Uh, in sub-Saharan Africa. It takes a lot longer to do diligence, to deploy capital, to see a return on that capital, and to arbitrarily place these fund maturity limitations on you when you're trying to create value for a founder and for your portfolio, you know, to me, was, was, was a bit arbitrary and, and didn't serve the market that we wanted to be investing into. So, you know, starting from that basis, and, you know, again, at that time, because I was just deploying my own capital, the other sort of fundamental notion that I was holding onto was, why sell a good company? You know, as an investor, if I'm backing a great team and that team is doing really well and I'm doing well with them, 
why ever need to sell that company? So this notion that just because you had investors that you were had a fiduciary duty to that were forcing you to sell an opportunity, potentially even into a bad market, was something that I, I sort of took issue with. And my partner and I basically broke down what was traditional blind pool funds. And from there, tried to recreate and rebuild something that was really fit for market. So, you know, that's that's where we came at this opportunity for them and tried to sort of break down traditional models. Again, we've we've raised capital from from the markets, and we obviously had to build something that that worked to their needs. And you know, the other challenge around that has been the alignment between what we call general partners and limited partners, and finding a way to ensure that there was alignment long term, not not this notion where you know we were making money before our limited partners were making money. That's sort of been our our mindset or the context by which we've looked at the market from an investor perspective. On your other question, which is in terms of what's different, I think fundamentally, when you come at the market, you need to come at it from the ground up and really deeply appreciate how to deploy capital in a way that's actually meeting what your founders require. And that's not always equity. You know, in our experience, we came to appreciate that founders as they grew sometimes didn't actually need diluted financing, but needed working capital or needed some other method of capital deployment that was helping the businesses grow that didn't always look like equity. And so we wanted to build something that was adaptable to, to their needs. There's so many things to unpack from what you just said that uh, is really fascinating to me. And I'm going to just uh, highlight them one after the other. And I, uh, I really love you to actually speak into them. One is the notion around uh, the length of the time that um, an LP should be expecting return or even an investor expecting return in the company. And you really talking, if I get you right, you're saying that um, that time is arbitrary. That it, because the 220 is based on you invest, you deploy capital over a period of time and you expect it to be to be returned over a period of time and within that time the the fund manager will be getting 2% management fee and then the 20% is the profit that you get at the end of the, at the end of the day with the expectation that whatever you deploy will be making profit and there's a decent IRR but what you're saying is almost upending that whole process and, and I'm, I'm really interested to know what are your key expectations or when you're talking to your LPs about uh, about uh, about returns about about the term of it and, and the length of time it's going to take them to get their money back compared to other asset class and then you also mentioned about exit <laughs> the why sell a good company so the question is how does an investor get the money back if if the company is not being sold and it's and it's a private and it's a private company that is is illegal. maybe you can take one one at a time really so but i'm just really curious to know that because this is a good good thing to actually discuss uh, because i've been trying to get my head around about around what is the best way to do venture in Africa? And I don't have the right answer to it, but it's fascinating to hear your thoughts on that. So let's let's unpack that a bit and perhaps start with the, the latter, which is uh, exit. Yes. And, you know, this is something that, you know, has has sort of been learned over time and, and something that I've been trying to formulate a strategy around. And, you know, we, we are obviously exit minded. If you're a fund manager or you're managing capital, irrespective of through what kind of structure, you, you live and die by your ability to create returns. Yes. However, that's calculated. So one fundamental distinction between let's call it the traditional valley, and that could also be in Western Europe or Israel uh, or, or in Palo Alto, is that companies there are, are, are bought. There's, there's inbound traffic to buy your company. And as a founder, your obligation is to find what the best opportunity is for your shareholders relative to your sort of trajectory in terms of the market opportunity you're trying to capture. capture. On the continent, companies are sold. So y- your job as an investor, uh, with support obviously with the founder, is to try to find those strategic opportunities, whether that's uh, trade sales, M&A activity, 
uh, or even bring in strategics early on, you know, which which is something we appreciate now. We're seeing more and more of with you know companies like Paystack, um, you know, bringing in the right type of companies that could create value for them or potentially be exits for them. And we've we've very actively focused as as investors at an earlier stage to make sure that strategics are brought in early, that are complementary to the founders and complementary to the company, uh, and and specifically that being a potential exit opportunity. So it's not that we aren't exit-minded, it's that we think very differently about what those exit opportunities look like. And to me, those exit opportunities will come from corporates that are effectively buying growth uh, in, in these new markets. So, 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 so the assumption there is that most exit opportunity in Africa will be coming from M&A, um, from strategic sale to other corporate either within the continent or outside the continent who are looking to come in just because the public market in Africa is not that sophisticated and it's not, it's not even there for, in most cases. So that's the assumption around exit for you. It, it is. And, and it also plays into where we actually deploy capital. It's something we, ha- we haven't spoken about, but our sort of internal thesis is what is the critical infrastructure needs uh, of the market? And w- what we've come to appreciate is that, you know, there's sort of three pillars of economic growth. Those are, you know, what we call internally financial services or financial capital, human capital and physical capital. So to unpack that a bit further, that's financial services under under financial capital, it's data content, it's it's all the things that drive economic growth in the context of you being an entrepreneur, needing access to markets and access to the capital required to help your business grow. Uh, under human capital, uh, you know, education and healthcare are essential to to build the kind of talent necessary to grow a business. And other physical capital, it's it's the need for critical infrastructure. If you don't have roads and you don't have power to fuel your economy, then you don't have the basis for growth. So when we began investing as a fund, we, we really began targeting those type of sectors where we could deploy capital back the incumbent companies or technologies in those markets that were going to fuel that growth, knowing full well that you know, when a company like GE or Siemens, or, you know, the perfect example being AB InBev's acquisition of SAB Miller, will we'll want to buy that market expansion and growth. You know, when you ask the CEO of AB InBev why he spent, you know, shy of $20 billion to buy Sab Miller, the answer was simple. Africans drink more beer per capita than any place else on earth. And and that's only going to continue to grow. And so we, we, we hold on to that thesis around backing those type of opportunities in those markets. You mentioned the other time, you said a statement around why sell a business if it's doing well. And and that to me rings like, okay, are there other ways or there are other ways in which you can get return on your investment beyond outright sale or going public? Because to me, uh, venture business or venture capital is a very illiquid uh, asset class in anyway. Uh, but then now extending it beyond 10 or 12 years and, and, and expecting return via other means beyond ultra sale looks to me looks more illiquid than than normal so i just wanted to uh, unpack that and, and explain how you intend to get return on investment uh beyond just selling the business sure so we see opportunities that sort of could be fit into three different buckets from a returns perspective there are the venture capital technology-led businesses that will deliver or, or not deliver because they are binary bets, uh, the hockey stick returns, 
you know, these are the power law dynamics of, you know, 10x to 100x, hopefully type investment returns. There are more operating margin oriented businesses that are, are certainly high growth, but we would think of as buy and hold where there are cash flowing yield opportunities that even on a long term basis, generate very attractive cash returns that could be attractive for our investors. And then there are pure debt or structured related opportunities where we're deploying capital to great businesses that have some track record um, that need a combination of working capital or financing to help the growth of their business and don't necessarily need today diluted financing from equity. And you know, so through those three combinations, we aim to deliver the kind of returns that our investors expect, taking the risk of backing, you know, high growth early stage businesses in, in sub-Saharan Africa. I was super interested to know what the conversation you had with your LPs and, and how that goes in terms of the term and what type of LPs were you able to attract because the traditional LPs to venture venture fund are always maybe pension fund or family offices who are deploying part of their assets into, into venture and we expect that is going to get back to them in about 12 years and they would have if they want this high, high yield cash flow businesses maybe they can deploy that in a public market i'm interested to know are you able to convince and who are the type of lps that you you target and what's the term of of, of your fund so you you can't talk about lps in africa without talking about the dfis that yeah. probably and my numbers could be off represent about 70 percent of all the capital or, or the private investment capital coming into the market. Correct. Um, and, you know, for for better or for worse, the, the DFIs have a certain thesis about how to deploy capital. And they they need to put things into certain buckets. And, you know, to be frank, our, our approach doesn't fit into one particular bucket. Uh, and that's simply because we're building something that is meeting the market today w- where it is. Um, I would classify it as that. Uh, so, you know, we've gone after a pool of capital that has already cut its teeth uh, in EM. It's built some of its wealth in, in, in emerging and frontier markets, whether that's China or India, Latin America or Southeast Asia. You know, and these are families that understand what the opportunities look like. There are high margin businesses that you may or may not see in terms of the headlines. There are high growth businesses that require early stage capital that would deliver venture type returns and there are debt opportunities. And so, you know, we, we've been fortunate enough to have backing from those kinds of family offices that understand uh, the time horizon, understand what the market looks like and, and appreciates that there, there are multiple different ways to create value with your capital um, and building something that was adaptable to create that value. Um, so that's where we are today in terms of our, our pool of capital. We, we think it's the right kind of capital. We think there's a tremendous amount of, let's call it private wealth in, in the markets that are looking for venture type returns, that are looking for opportunities in frontier markets. Some of that being driven by, by a desire to deploy capital through an impact investing lens. Some of that through simply an appreciation that my family has made money in some other emerging market. And the same trend that I saw in that emerging market 15 or 20 years ago, I now see occurring 
uh, in the markets in which we're investing. If you're not using, I assume you're not using 220 because you said that is that might not be the appropriate model to use in, in Africa. If you're not using 220 as a, as a model f- uh, for your economics, how are you engineering your, your fund economics, basically? It's really aligned around this notion of, of transparency uh, and, and greater ownership around how capital is deployed by, by, by our LPs. So if you think about it simply, um, and, and without getting into too much detail, we've created a structure that ensures that we have the flexibility to deploy the right kind of capital, uh, to, to think longer term about how that capital is deployed, and to align our team in a way that you know we do well when our investors do well, uh, and not the other way around. So how do you fund your traveling around and management and um, team uh, in, in the short term? So a couple of ways. One is my, my partner and I had been carrying the cost uh, of, of the management team up until a certain point. And we, we've brought in a strategic investor who supports the, the growth of the company by having an ownership in the business as well as uh, being an investor in the fund. That's great. That's, that's a unique way. So that frees you up not to have this time limit. Uh, so you can be flexible and have freedom to be able to explore different ways of deploying capital, whether it's through debt or through some of the uh, ways in which you mentioned about uh, yield, continuous yield. And so it gives you that flexibility to, to operate with, beyond the constraint of a, of a standard venture capital model. Yeah, I I I want to I want to just sort of be be clear here that you know our aim obviously is still to deliver return. Uh, we we still we still have a a mandate to deploy capital over over a ten year period. The, the difference is that our ten year period doesn't start when we raise a dollar of capital. The ten year period begins on each investment uh, once we deploy that capital. Interesting, interesting. So, and, you- and so, and so, I, I just want to, you know, just elaborate on that further. This notion of, of of a harvesting period and an investment period it's it's something that's antiquated, in my opinion. And why why be again because of a set of documents forced to deploy capital uh, over over a three year accelerated period, and then manage that capital, let's say over a six or seven year period, versus finding the right companies to back. And then backing them through their life cycle. So, you know, to go back to a question you asked earlier about what's different, I think being stage agnostic uh, is is different and, and thinking differently around stage of investing. And, you know, given the dearth of capital, if we could back a great team and then double down and triple down on that team as they achieve growth and and, and, and meet clear milestones, we could really support great companies throughout their growth life cycle pre you know, pre-exit or pre-institutional capital from a large private equity fund. I think that's that's something that we thought differently about. We think that is a, a better approach than just being a micro fund or seed fund. Because again, what does that mean if you don't know where that next growth check is coming from? Totally agree with you on that, actually. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I want to say that I totally, totally agree with you on that. It's one of those things that observing an African market, and I call it that the lack of escalator. Um, the, the escalator is not long for, for investment. So in the UK and the US, you can be very stage um, uh, focused and say, I am only a seed round investor because i know that if i can spot the right company and invest in them there are other people that will take over from me if those if those businesses 
if they hit certain milestones. In Africa, there's a dearth of capital and there is not enough investor out there. So there's a need for multi-round investment and, and investors were happy to back uh, entrepreneurs from early stage to as long as they need the capital for if the business is doing well and, and also lead or get the right investment around them over a period of time rather than just being uh, focused on the stage. So that's what I was about to say that I really agree with you on that. Hey, Dota, you, you, you've you've been a you've been a founder uh, in the past uh, and and an entrepreneur for for much of your you know as an investor if I were to come to you and say I, I'm I'm here with you for the long term I I want to build something for with you and sit side by side with you throughout that growth I think it's a differentiation you know and differentiation strategy is important whether you are building a business uh, as we're building an investment business and it's actually inherent in our name uh, you'd ask me sort of in the pre-discussion around, you know, where does the name come from? And, you know, lateral, funny enough, my, my wife came up with the name of the company, but, you know, lateral means two things for us. It's one is about thinking differently, lateral thinking, and two about, you know, sitting laterally with, with your investors. So sitting side by side with the companies we're, we're backing is really core to how we think about supporting founders and, and being in market. Someone said something to me recently that was profound and said, and it was trying to explain what I do as an investor. And he said that we are financial capital looking for human capital to, to partner with. And we, we work alongside entrepreneurs and we provide, so they're entrepreneurs, we're entrepreneurs ourselves, but we are coming with the money and we are working alongside them to enable them achieve their aim and purpose and i think that's a very good way of seeing yourself as an, as, a, as an investor rather than somebody who just just throwing the fuel and then running away and looking and say okay bye bye come back to me after three years and whether whether you want to sell or not which you can easily do if you're in the u.s you can actually just throw money at the company and forget about it and not even worry about where, where they're going to raise the next money from as long as they are good <laughs> and you, you can just pray and, and then expect the best uh, but in africa you need to do better than that now i want to go into some of your pieces around companies that you back i know you're stage agnostic i also think that you are sector agnostic as well but i'm sure that you are particular about a few things so i want to deep dive into your core uh selection criteria for your businesses i know you're you're probably a bit sector agnostic even though you have these core things that you look at for so i want to really just deep dive into what do you look at for in businesses when they approach you? What are the key areas that you focus on and what are the key things that you say no to? Uh, especially for entrepreneurs that will be listening to this and say, okay, I want to approach Steve to invest in my business. But you want, you don't want to know what are the key things that you, you actually look at for before you invest in their business. Yeah, no, it, it does, it's really essential to, to have a, a lens by which you underwrite or due diligence on a company. So, you know, we call it the five critical success factors uh, internally. And, you know, we, we're actually quite transparent around our investment process. We, we try to disclose that as, as quickly as possible to say, this is what our expectations are. This is what our, our, our methodology and our, our time horizon will look like. Um, before we actually commit capital. So, you know, those critical success factors simply for us are, are team, uh, market size, uh, unit economics, returns, and, and impact. Um, and, and we could unpack that a bit further, some of which are obvious, some are perhaps not as obvious. But beyond, obviously, the, the talent uh, and, and the history of the team and, and the quality of the team that's driving the business, you know, for us, understanding the unit economics of the business today 
versus at scale are, are essential. And, and, and unfortunately, so many founders we come across just don't understand the fundamental drivers of growth of their business. Like, how does that business generate $1 return or $1 revenue? And, and how does that $1 revenue flow through the business? to an operating profit or to to a net profit and that's something that you know i think is is fundamental especially in a market where you don't know where that next check is coming from and something we love about the hustle of the founders we meet and have backed is they're not obsessed with this notion of growth uh, at, at all expenses they appreciate the need to generate bottom line returns as well you also back um because one of the first business that i, that I saw that you were looking into is a fintech company is there any bias towards that and do you have because i mentioned i know you mentioned about this critical element that you look at for financial capital human capital and fiscal capital and it looked to me that financial capital is one of the key areas in which one can easily make a difference in, in africa basically and there's a lot of uh, a lot of money going into fintech recently so i want to know your view around that and whether uh, is too much money going to fintech tech or not enough is going there and what are the key opportunities that you've been seeing based on your interaction with that space and, and I also want to explore your, your thinking around the geography in Africa because I know you can Africa is huge and, and which areas <laughs> <laughs> which areas are you looking the at understatement <laughs> yeah, which areas are you looking at uh, so, so let's take the first one about your, your, your ideas around fintech uh, and, and what are the key things that you're seeing opportunities challenges and complexities in that space you asked a great question uh, around uh, is it a notion of too much capital not enough capital I think always more capital is warranted just given how how young the the sort of financial services sector is and, and how broken it is um, you know for us we've taken a sort of cautiously optimistic approach to backing fintech companies and and that's because so much of what's out there currently are are single solution businesses. So businesses that are solely solving the notion of interoperability, solely solving the notion of, of lending, solely solving the notion of, of efficient remittance flows. And you know we think that to create resilience in your business, you, you need to have more of a platform play. Because ultimately, I think what's going to drive the notion of interoperability and, and who the winner is, is going to be more relationally driven. Than, than anything else. Uh, and let's be frank, the, the problem has largely been solved. Now it's a question of who's going to be the incumbent and, and how are they going to scale and grow geographically. And I'm not smart enough to know who's going to win that race. But what I do know is that there's going to be a lot of M&A activity in that space. You know, you have probably 15 plus interoperability businesses just in, in, in Nigeria alone. And so we've taken an approach around backing platforms that are, are solving multiple problems in the financial services space and, and selling those solutions to banks. Not, not operating outside of the traditional banking infrastructure. So that's been our thinking around financial services. Can you give examples of businesses that are only focused on one solution or interoperability problems in, in Nigeria versus uh, the ones that are platform? Because the reason why I ask that is a lot of time when investors meet entrepreneurs in Africa, one of the feedback that they give is, oh, you're doing too many things. You're, you're trying to vertically integrate yourself into everything. And, and then a lot of entrepreneurs want to then focus and because that's what they... 
that's that's what they that's how they interpret that feedback but you're saying some, something different here so i want to get the understanding around companies focusing on one thing only example interoperability versus a platform fintech you know i i, I came into this podcast i, I don't want to self-promote lateral or self-promote any of our portfolio you companies. can by the way because yeah. it's no it's, it's no that's, that's not that's not my aim here but uh so let me talk about a company we missed that, that, that I deeply appreciate and love. And, you know, that's OB at Kobo 360. And I think it's a great business. And, you know, while the outside headline is he's solving the inefficiency of logistics, he's really built a financial services company. And they're, they're using their wallet with their drivers to provide all sorts of services and value creation for, for the drivers. You know, they're improving their livelihoods, not just by creating an efficient marketplace around, around logistics, but they're also helping in terms of offering access to capital for uh, working capital for thinking about the drivers as entrepreneurs around finance for student student education for their families, healthcare, and obviously financial inclusion to the banking sector through the right types of partnerships with banking rails. So we, we love a business that is thinking holistically around a strategy. And, you know, to me, th- there's a difference between a company doing too much that is outside its core core strategy versus a business that is building a moat around how it supports customer. You know, in this case, cl- clearly the customer being the, the truck driver. So, you know, it's something we appreciate versus a business that is just offering lending or just offering this this solution of you know banks to cards or small businesses to 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 mobile money is it an evolution thing as well because i know Cobo 360 started by just initially solving the uh, logistics problem in Lagos, especially around e-commerce. And then they spotted a bigger opportunity around truck. Uh, and then they started building a lot of value uh, around that core offering. Is it an evolution thing whereby a company can start with lending and then discover that there are more problems around repayment, tracking, credit scoring, and then build a platform around that that would be useful for everyone in the ecosystem? Do you see that uh, as a progression or rather? as a stand business takes and then they're, they're stuck there for, for a long time. I would ask the question, does the founder have the vision to see that early or or is that more of a pivot uh, in respect of where his business has, has not been as successful? And that's something that really sort of takes time to appreciate in terms of, you know, how strategic is a founder. And, you know, we really haven't spoken much around what we look for from, from a team perspective. But, you know, for us, the, the ability to take in data, evaluate that data and either adapt or change or, or keep going forward is critical for us. And, you know, we've been fortunate enough to find founders who have thought through enough of their business uh, and have enough experience to to pivot or change that we could see that early on, that they are thinking around the mode of their the business versus just solving, again, a single solution problem. So, so it boils down to the liquidity of thoughts of the founder and, and, and how big their vision is to be able to see beyond what they're currently doing or where they started from. So they could start like Amazon selling books, but then they have a big vision to see beyond that and, and be able to build a business that can respond to, to, to the opportunities as they come. So is that something that you're looking at as well in founders? So it would be good. Maybe this would be a good segue to look at a typical founder that you could be looking at in Africa. You mentioned at the beginning of this conversation around re- repatriated Africans. And there are a lot of conversation around that. And some of it, are, uh, some of this conversation can be a bit contentious as well. With regards to who is a typical founder in Africa that is attracting venture money. 
and it could be a bit contentious, but it looked like sometimes venture VCs and investors uh, try to you try to de-risk uh, your investment by looking at the kind of founders that you're you're investing in, whether they. They, they can execute the experience, the pedigree, uh, and there can be some biases around that as well. But I'm interested to know how you evaluate founders um, objectively, and and what are the what are the typical things that you look out for in a founder that you want to back. It's a great question and and certainly a contentious question, and I'll, I'll take it on as much as we we can in terms of how we've deployed capital to date uh, and, and what we look at, but. Um, you know, without getting into the psychology of, of what we expect in a founder. And, and you know, I think for a founder to really understand his strengths and weaknesses um, is essential is, you know, we're trying to back the best teams that are solving big problems. And so, you know, you could unpack that into, you know, the team's history and experience, both individually and together, the, the big why of, you know, why have they left something more comfortable Perhaps with some downside and 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 reliable income to take on this challenge, uh, and the heavy lift of what it is to be a founder. Um, what is their execution capability? You know, what have they done to date? Uh, how do they do it? How do they think strategically around their business and building a roadmap to grow the business? You know, what is their big picture? And and you know, for us again, the issue of coachability. It's, it's a big one for us. Is you know, how willing to admit that they're wrong or that perhaps they're thinking the wrong way about something, how, how willingly are they willing to listen to guidance and advice um, and, and not be so sort of brute driven um, that all they see is their own ideas. Uh, you know, th- those are sort of big things for us. So we, tr- we try to be as objective about that as possible and, and have a ranking system that we're, we're tracking opportunities, we're tracking founders. You know, sometimes we say that uh, the founder is an A, but the business is a is a B or a C, or the business is an A and the founder is a, a B or C. And so we think about that a lot. The, there are obviously biases that are are inherent in in how capital is deployed. Um, you, people will always invest in what's perhaps more comfortable or what they know. But you know, I think this sort of larger conversation of foreign founders versus local founders is is really a false equivalence. Uh, it, it doesn't need to be an either or. It, it needs to be in, in everything and, and backing the best teams. And, you know, I, I, I saw the report uh, that, that, that sort of initiated this conversation. And, you know, again, you know, statistics could be utilized in, in, in multiple different ways to create good or create bad. And I think in this context, you know, looking at one particular year um, and one particular data set, um, created a narrative that I think just has not played out as the, as the as sort of the venture ecosystem is involved. And look at the last 24 months of of capital raised by the venture community. I mean, look at Ken at Cellulant. Look at the folks at Af- Wainaki and, and these other businesses. I mean, they've, they've raised significant amounts of capital. Um, and these are local founders who've been grinding in markets for a long time. Look, look at Flutterwave, look at what's happening in, in Nigeria. Uh, I just think that to, to put this out into the market today uh, only turns away the right kind of capital that, that, the, that the environment needs. And, and it, is a, it needs to be a healthy mix of local, local capital as well as institutional foreign capital. 
True. And, and, and also, the, the, there's something that is quite strong about the fact that uh, the venture capital in Africa is, is in day zero. Uh, we're just starting. Even those, the, the, that, that data, is, is uh, there can be some biases, actually. Even in the UK, there's bias everywhere. There's bias in, in the SF. Investors are people. They invest in people that they can identify with, that they think can execute based on what they understand execution to be. But then we're still in day zero. And, and I agree with you. Investors are business people as well. They, they want to invest not because of what would they like. They want to invest in businesses that they think can give them the best return for their money. So I agree with you on that. And I also like some of the ways in which you, you analyzed how you look at and evaluate founders. And, and I think the following question to that would be, if you have an A founder that is doing a B business versus a B founder doing a A business, um, which one would you go for? We'll, we'll always back the A founder. You always back uh, and, A founders, and, yes. And, 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 and that doesn't necessarily mean that we'll back the A founder in the B business. Yeah, yeah, it, I'm just it, looking, if, if the choice is between it, both, yeah. Yeah, it, it means we'll, we'll, we'll say, I, I hope this business uh, doesn't work out so you can get to doing the business that will work out. Interesting, interesting. I, I've always known that... Uh, uh, team is more important than the opportunity because a great team can turn an opportunity around whereas a bad team can actually do a bad job with a good opportunity um so i, I i'm about to round off this this podcast but there's another question i want to ask about the the size of your fund at the moment and what are your vision geographically i think that's another question that we left hanging which is where do you focus in africa because given that africa is not a country it's huge where do you focus and what's the size of your fund so the the fund size is is 50 million dollars we achieved our first close uh i guess now we're at the end of 2018 so at the end of q2 2018 we achieved our first close which we'll make an announcement on uh, after the new year. And so we're managing about $20 million of capital right now that we could actively deploy in what we call dry powder in the sort of fund fun game. And you know, to answer the question around geographically, you know, it, it, it's interesting because, you know, again, as I was running around and, and looking at the market back in early 2013, 2014, you know, I really came to appreciate, you know, what I was good at as an investor. And, and and what I obviously wasn't good at as an investor. And, you know, for us, you know, investing in, in rural environments where last mile costs are, are challenging and, and very difficult to solve for was something we, we came to appreciate is just not going to work. And so we, we think of ourselves as, as urban investors, you know, where we're actually not investing in countries, we're investing in cities. And, you know, we don't need to jump too much into what the urbanization story is, but you know, there are over 450 million uh, citizens uh, across Sub-Saharan Africa investing, uh, living in, in, in urban environments. That number is going to grow faster uh, over the next 25 years than any other place on earth at any other time in history uh, over such a consolidated time. So, you know, w- we look at cities, uh, we look at clusters of cities as we think about geographic expansion of our portfolio companies or future companies. And, you know, so for us, Obviously, places like like Lagos really excite us. Uh, Nairobi clearly, uh, where we have an active an active approach. But you know, thinking about the future, I can't deny that uh, Kinshasa is is just an incredibly vibrant environment. Perhaps we're a bit too early for it, but we are we are considering and thinking more about how to how to make a play there. And and Addis, um, you know, it's a fairly more closed environment. Um, with a lot of challenges around currency, but you know those are two cities with massive populations and, and massive needs that that you know to us internally are, are, are very excited as as urban investors. Interesting. Uh, it, it looks 
you, you're looking a lot uh, on a wider scope, and but you're, you're also micro focusing on cities. That, that, that's great. I'm going to round off this conversation with fire and questions that I normally ask my guests, and I hope you're ready for that. It's just I'll say a statement, and I need you to just give me like a 60 seconds response to that. What is your biggest business pain point at the moment? Our biggest business pain point is time. It's you know how to do everything we love you know, which is a combination and, you know, as an investor, it's like a decathlon, you need to be great at multiple things. So, you know, we need to be great at investing. We need to be great at managing our portfolio. We need to be great at building a strong culture within our company. And we need to be great at raising capital and, and actually supporting the capital raise through, you know, transparency and investor updates. Uh, so it's really just time to do everything, you know, with a small amount of capital, um, it, it's very difficult to do that. Um, and you know we've we've been we've been good to date, but we want to be great at that. How big is your team at the moment? So we're, we're a team of six with uh, core four core members spread across Lagos, Nairobi, and, and New York being our HQ with uh, two venture partners, uh, one in Johannesburg and the other in in Lagos, Nigeria. Right. So it's interesting when you you're answering a question about what your business your biggest business pain points. So when I used to ask this question to entrepreneurs, and most would tell me either people, so getting the right talent or, or capital. But I think it's interesting to hear the perspective of an investor is about time. It's getting the right time to either uh, raise enough money, back the right company and get the return on investment within a time frame that you wanted to come back. So that's a different perspective that is super interesting to me. What is your number one growth metric? You mean as a fund or what we look for in our portfolio company? Okay, so we can we can treat it as both. So as, as, a, as a firm, okay, so what do you look at, which is, is which is going to be hard and, and, and difficult to answer. What do you look at as your growth metric? Because uh, the business of, a, of an investment is, is not like you're doing marketing and you're selling something. <laughs> you're looking for businesses to back. So, And I guess it could be maybe the number of inbound that you get. I don't know. But what is the number one thing that you look at to see whether you're growing as a business? As a business, as a fund itself. But, and then maybe we can talk about the portfolio company as well. Yeah, let me start with the portfolio company then. Uh, so, you know, again, unit economics for businesses could be somewhat different. Yeah. But, you know, if you if you unpack that, you know, we are looking for, for, for revenue growth. And I would say that's probably the number one metric you look for. So, you know, whether that's top line, net revenue, depending on how the business is structured, where it's, you know, has gross transaction value or, or gross gross market value. Revenue growth is is really critical for us. And then from a fund level, obviously we're looking for for up rounds and and improved uh, NAV, which is net asset value. Uh, but for us, the the key metric from a returns perspective at the fund level is is multiple invested capital. So if you put in a dollar in, how many dollars do you get out? Yeah. I think most funds are largely driven by IRR. Yeah. But you know, for us. In terms of being longer dated, IRR is a bit of a false flag. Yeah, I was about to ask that. That you look at IRR, and if so, what how, how focused are you on it, and what are your views around using that as a metric to measure uh, the performance of a fund? Because I know a lot of LPs, and especially people that are coming from multi-asset uh, investment, so that they can have a benchmark to compare with other asset class that they've put their money in, and and. And I guess maybe maybe this is not too relevant for you because you got a lot of your cash from um, entrepreneurs, family family offices who might not be looking at that. But I, I, 
I'm interested to know your view around IRR uh, as as a metric to measure the performance of a fund. It, it's a, it's certainly a longer conversation. Um, <laughs> Maybe because, we can have that in know, part I, two. I've, of I've, I've 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 managed two funds uh, more traditionally prior to this, and you know we, we could get into sort of the economics of time, time value for money, and and you know why IRR is a bit challenging from the perspective of of of. Uh, of, of the cost of capital and time. And, you know, I think there's there's been an evolution in fund tracking to things like DPI, TVPI, which uh, I don't I don't want to bore your audience with. But, uh, <laughs> What's DPI, it, by the way? T- TVPI is, is 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 total value that's paid in. Oh yes. Um, and and so DPI is is distributed that's been paid in. Okay, I think that's we can have another conversation around that, which I'm I'm really super interested in because I really want to deep dive into how do you how do you measure how, how do you evaluate a good fund, especially in a difficult market, and how do you evaluate it based on where you're coming from, where you raise the money from, because I know that. That multi-asset managers want to be able to benchmark uh, different assets from different places. So it seems you've done a lot of work around this, and it might be good to have another part two of this conversation for people who are nerds and who want to go into that kind of conversation or, or know more about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, happy to do so. I just uh, it requires a whiteboard, perhaps and, uh, <laughs> less. Less less exciting from the podcast perspective. <laughs> Maybe it's going to be a webinar, some, something like that. <laughs> yeah. So which book are you reading at the moment? I just sort of came off a fascinating kick over the last two months uh, around, I guess I would call it uh, the biases of investors. Uh, and and I, I read two fascinating books that really play in very closely with that. The, the one I just finished a few days ago was uh, the book about uh, Joe Lowe. And and the Malaysia one MDB scandal, uh, the billion dollar whale, and you know it, it was just fascinating from the perspective of of, of an, one individual and his ego that that hoodwinked uh, not just not just the Malaysian government but you know well regarded banks and institutions like Goldman Sachs, and the other being the book about uh, Elizabeth Holmes and, and Theranos and you know how she hoodwinked what we think of as very sophisticated, intelligent institutions and investors into backing a technology that never worked and, and just a dream. Um, so, you know, I just came off this sort of kick around, really come to appreciate um, the biases that drive investors to make bad decisions, mm. largely driven by things like FOMO and, and, and telephone diligence, which, you know, we see as pervasive uh, across venture investing. <laughs> I like that. Telephone diligence. I need to keep that as a new phrase for today. Telephone diligence. <laughs> <laughs> Which business is getting you excited at the moment? And feel free to to uh, plug your own portfolio companies as well. But which business is getting you excited at the moment? You know, one of the companies that we we back that we're incredibly excited about is is Coco Networks. You know, it's solving a massive pain point around cooking fuel, which you know we came to appreciate during our diligence process is is the second largest non discretionary spend of the average household, um, and and how they're solving that in a very technology driven way. Uh, what you would think of as sort of as as a as a hardware, you know asset class driven business uh, and and really sort of the larger opportunities around using that deployment um, for smart commerce purposes. Uh, the other is is, is marketplaces. Um, we're, we're excited about the ability to build trust networks to bring buyers and sellers together 
in a f- more formalized fashion. Uh, you know, it's something that we've seen quite actively in in the U.S. and and in China in particular. Um, and you know, to us, you know, what's what's essential and critical to build an effective marketplace is to have transparency and trust. And so, if you could do that as a platform, um, especially in something that's a large market. Again, think of Uber as sort of the perfect test case for this. Um, we're seeing more and more opportunities in, in, in that environment in, in West Africa and East Africa. And those are things we want to invest in and back in 2019. Super interesting. Super interesting. Uh, I knew that this conversation is going to be interesting uh, when I reached out to you to come to this podcast. Um, and I'm actually uh, blown by it and I've learned a lot. And so thank you very much, Steve, for coming to the show today. Yeah, yeah, deeply appreciate it. Thank you so much. And, uh, you know, look forward to staying engaged. Yeah, I look forward to having you again. And maybe around that time when you're talking, we're talking about deeper stuff like higher <laughs> DPR and TVPI and stuff like that. Or we can do it as a webinar at some stage. But thanks for coming <laughs> to this show. <laughs> much, much appreciate. Thank you again. This episode is brought to you by Rave. Rave is the easy way for African businesses to collect payments from customers anywhere in the world across multiple online and offline channels through Rave. You can accept Visa, MasterCard, Verve, and other debit or credit card payments from customers in over 154 countries. You can also seamlessly accept payments via your bank transfers from customers in the US, South Africa, and Nigeria, as well as via mobile wallet from customers in Kenya and Ghana. If you want to expand your business across the continent and you need a reliable payment solution, I would recommend that you sign up for Rave at rave.flutterwave.com. You've been listening to Building the Future podcast by Dalton. These are the interviews with entrepreneurs that are playing a key part in shaping the African future. And you'll be able to hear all their stories. For more, sign up for the weekly newsletter at thestarter.com. Our revolution will be televised. Hey everyone, thanks so much for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed the show. Before you go, I have a favor to ask you, and it will take 30 seconds of your time or less. It will mean a lot to me. If you like this podcast, you can easily let me know by going into iTunes, Teacher, SoundCloud, or wherever you download podcasts and subscribe. You can also go to our website, thestarter.com. That is T-H-E-S-T-A-R-T-A.com and sign up for our newsletter. It will be a huge favor to me and it's really simple and easy. If you subscribe now, it will help us a lot. Thanks. Thanks.